Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat the official podcast of Modern Pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to another exciting episode of ModPass Chat. It gives me a great pleasure to have Dr. Marissa Nucci as our guest today to discuss her team's study on atypical uterine polyps that was recently published in Modern Pathology. Dr. Nucci is a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and vice chair and director of the Division of Women Health and Perinatal Pathology at Brigham and Women. Marissa is a superstar in our field, and I mean it when I say that. She is the past president of the Arthur Purdy Stout Society, president-elect of the International Society of Gynecologic Pathology, and has earned many, many awards. She is a co-editor of three major gynecologic uh, pathology textbooks. So thank you, Dr. Nucci, for joining me today. George, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. So uh, it's... uh, I love those podcasts if for no other reason is because they make me learn so much about stuff that I usually would not scrutinize in so much detail. And this study, uh, it's really, I want to preface it, it's exemplary on, on how a great study in morphology and molecular and clinical is done. And it's really, I recommend for people uh, who are new uh, writing manuscripts to, to look at how this study was done because uh, I congratulate you on it. So I realize it's a, it's a rare relatively rare entity for you to to have 63 cases and you're very have very busy practice but uh, it seems like it's a it's a can pose a major issue in terms of management uh, and when we face such a lesion correct so can you give us a little background yeah that that's correct and i first i'd just like to say that this this paper was really spearheaded by my former fellow dr david chapel who's currently on staff at university of michigan so he really uh was a tremendous uh, help in getting this paper uh, published. Um, th- this is a practical problem that gynecologic pathologists deal with on a daily basis. Endometrial polyps are actually quite common, that you see them quite often in your daily practice. Right. And I remember when I was in training, it was always said it's not a question of um, if you'll miss an adenosarcoma, it was when. 
And so there was always this thought of when you're looking at polyps, always be very careful uh, that you're not looking or missing uh, an adenosarcoma. So there's a practical problem on a daily basis with regard to this diagnosis. But on the other hand, a diagnosis of adenosarcoma has a tremendous impact on the patient. If you make the diagnosis of adenosarcoma, the patient typically will go ahead and get a uh, hysterectomy and a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. And although the adenosarcomas typically occur in a slightly older age population, it can occur in reproductive age women, and it can have a big impact on their on their life. And so we're very interested in this, this threshold issue with regard to making the diagnosis. And over the course of many years, we've seen cases that raise the possibility of this diagnosis, but mm-hmm. don't quite meet the threshold. And the purpose of this study was really to expand upon a prior study that we did with, with Dr. Howitt, Burke Howitt, who's, who's out at Stanford, looking at just clinical outcome of these polyps that didn't cross the threshold for adenosarcoma. So really, the point of this study was to expand upon the number of cases that we had, and we, we doubled the number of cases and also looked at the clinical outcome, but then also asked the question, you know, how do these relate molecularly to banal endometrial polyps and and to what we now know about the molecular biology or the molecular genetics of adenosarcoma. Excellent. And and you already mentioned two co-authors and uh, uh, we should mention uh, Lynette Scholl and uh, Paula Delchen who really contributed uh, majorly to the study. So uh, uh, it's uh, so let's let's move on then to uh, to talk about what what were the techniques, what was the study design? Uh, I know you you studied. We mentioned sixty three polyps from fifty eight patients or fifty eight women, uh, and uh, so uh, what what kind of technology you used? Uh, just briefly, and uh, what were your major findings? Yeah, so we um, you know obtained the material from our files and from our in house files and our consultation files for any. Uh, patient that was diagnosed with one of these atypical polyps. And can you just mention briefly the morphologic features? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, most people know the the diagnostic criteria for adenosarcomas, which is really well-developed phyllodiform architecture, hypercellular cuffing of the epithelium by cellular stroma, um, the stromal cell atypia, which may or may not mm-hmm. be present, and, and mitotic activity. And these really have to be kind of very well-developed features. And I know that anyone who's looked at endometrial polyps will know that you'll come across polyps that might have a slight vague phyllodiform mm-hmm. architecture, or you might see some vague, rare uh, hypercellular stroma, but it, it makes you think about it, but it's not something where you look at it and you say, well, this is an adenosarcoma. It just raises concern. And I realize here there's a morphologic continuum and threshold issues with regard right. to diagnosis, but when I typically lecture about adenosarcoma, I say, you know, you really have to make sure that it is a bona fide, well-developed one before you make that diagnosis. And if there's only partial involvement of a polyp or the features aren't well-developed, you should really be cautious. And that's that's really what these polyps are. They're the group. ones that's that really don't polyps. cross the threshold for the diagnosis of adenosarcoma. And I think one of the powerful things about this study and the study that we had before is that because we didn't you know, we weren't diagnosing these as malignant. Um, many of these patients were just followed, obviously, mm-hmm. clinically. And we had, uh, you know, fantastic follow-up. 80% of our patients had follow-up, either clinical or on sampling. And most of the sampling was actually curettings, not necessarily hysterectomy. And so you could really understand the 
biology of the disease. Because if you make the diagnosis of anadenosarcoma that doesn't have sarcomatous overgrowth or myometrial invasion, most patients do well. So if you have a hysterectomy, you may have interrupted the biologic you know, mm-hmm. continuum or potential of these lesions. So to have follow-up that wasn't a hysterectomy, I think really tells you what the natural biology of these lesions are. So that was the, the clinical, you know, follow-up mm-hmm. part of the study. And then the other part of the study was to really look at a subset of these molecularly. And we used our um, next generation sequencing platform termed Oncopanel uh, to, to look at that. And, and there's and, some fish. And mm-hmm. so what we found was, you know, from the, from the clinical pathologic perspective, uh, none of these patients uh, developed an adenosarcoma. Mm-hmm. And a small subset, about 10%, had recurrent polyp, sometimes banal polyp or a polyp that had these atypical features. But none of them developed what we would classify as an adenosarcoma on follow-up sampling. So I think with this larger clinical pathologic series, what we're really saying is these things don't act in an aggressive way. They act in a benign clinical way with a benign clinical outcome. So again, it's important to understand that you have to kind of reach that threshold for adenosarcoma to really have, you know, uh, to really identify lesions that will have an impact on the patient. And then, yeah, go ahead. If I may say, so just to highlight for our audience, so the follow-up is is extensive, like you said, over 12 years as median and on many of them. Nevertheless, they were like almost quarter of the patients had undergone hysterectomy. So the, that's that's something to keep in mind be, uh, that that people may may overreact to your diagnosis and you have to be very careful yeah. and, and qualified. And, and right? patients too, of course, you know, some patients don't like uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you uh, write a report saying, here's a polyp, it's got a you know atypical features, but you know in our experience this doesn't represent an adenosarcoma. They may decide, well, I don't really want to take the risk if you know there is any uncertainty. And the second part is some of these patients are having bleeding or clinical symptoms, and they want to have a hysterectomy anyway. So I think there is that side of yeah. of it that it may lead to hysterectomy anyway based on patient you know desires and symptoms. Um, but then again, you know we have you know a, a large cohort of the patients that didn't have that. So the molecular, so some intriguing molecular uh, findings you found. So yeah, the molecular findings are really interesting because, and I think just you know we can get into the, the nitty gritty of the findings, but just from a twenty thousand foot level, I think what's interesting is is that these funny polyps have molecular overlap with adenosarcoma as well. Mm-hmm right? Um, They don't have as many of the changes as adenosarcoma, and they have a lower tumor mutational burden, lower uh, copy number variants, but they do share some of the same changes that you see in adenosarcoma. And what this kind of suggests is that not only do they morphologically share some of the features of adenosarcoma, but they molecularly share. And so they may very well be the very earliest forms, or at least on the biologic spectrum of adenosarcoma. Now, I don't think we should call them adenosarcomas because of, of, of their benign outcome and they don't really fulfill the morphologic criteria, but it kind of gets back to this whole interesting thing about how we as pathologists like to put things into categories mm-hmm. and bins. But biologically, things are along a spectrum. 
Always a continuum. It's always a continuum. And I think this is a nice example of of that, uh, you know, highlighting the the biologic continuum between these funny looking polyps and adenosarcoma. And interestingly, we didn't look at um, banal polyps. In other words, we didn't do next generation sequencing on banal polyps, which actually would be very interesting. The the data that we've we we site and we know about is based on cytogenetic literature with banal polyps typically having rearrangements of 6P21, which has the HMGA1 locus and things like that. So one would argue that banal polyps are a different pathobiological process than these polyps, which might be on the biological continuum of, of adenosarcoma. But I think that more work needs to be done in this area to really, really clarify that. Excellent. So you mentioned MMGA2, uh, and uh, I think MDM2 is the other uh, uh, gene that you found some overexpressions, and and these are uh, genes involved in lipogenesis, I guess, most most commonly. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. So, I mean, I, the HMGA2 gene and the MDM2 gene, which are very close together, so if they're amplified, they're often amplified together. Um, they're close together in location. So these polyps uh, had amplification, which is unusual for, for HMGA2, which is unusual for banal polyps. I think there's only like one case report of a, of a, a banal polyp that had HMGA2 amplification. Now, translocations and upregulation of HMGA2, as you mentioned, is, is, is common in lipomas and they can be seen in endometrial polyps. So if you use the immunohistochemical stain, you get positive staining. You just know that it's being expressed aberrantly, but the mechanism, underlying mechanism is not clear. It could be from a translocation or amplification. So in our study, we found more amplifications of HMGA2 um, than, than a translocation. And uh, another uh, chromosomal loci that was uh, amplified is the 6Q, and, and that has to do with the ESR then. That is correct. So uh, a subset of our polyps had that amplification as well. But and and we don't know what this means with regard to why these develop. Right. We it's interesting when we have these studies and we say, well, this gene is amplified or this region and that region. We don't really understand the interconnections of what this means for actual tumorigenesis. Not yet, Um, but it, it is an interesting Thing. And, and, and what, what's interesting about it is that it's these molecular findings that we have do overlap with adenosarcoma, not necessarily seen in polyps. And so really that's the connection there. That's great. So not only morphologically, they're part of that continuum, as you mentioned, and uh, but it's intriguingly 12 years follow-up, they didn't transform or cause, maybe because they were taken out or uh, or whatever, but also molecularly, which would bring us to the question from a practical point. So the next time, I'm not thankful, thank God, I'm not going to be getting a case like this. I don't sign you in, but my colleagues here, uh, what what should we do? It sounds like molecular is not going to help. Uh, so, so what's your recommendation? Yeah, so I, you know, I... I do think that, you know, in general, we're learning how molecular can help us on many different levels with, with throughout pathology. I think in this particular situation, as you said, it's not going to help because there's, there's potentially too much overlap there. You know, I think it comes down to, you know, morphology. I think that um, 
it's easier to sometimes say, okay, this is funny. Why don't you get a follow-up sample or correlate clinically what's going on with the patient? Are there multiple polyps in the endometrial cavity? That might make you be more concerned. Um, was the entire thing removed? It Was it done hysteroscopically? So there's, there's a conversation between you and the clinician with regard to for, for management of the patient. But, you know, I typically like to show cases, really hard cases to my colleagues. Um, in fact, in our study, we had one that was called an atypical polyp. It was one of the ones that had the most uh, aberrations molecularly. We went back and looked at it and we were like, oh, this looks a little funny and it's maybe closer to the threshold. Patients still did fine, right? So it makes me wonder if we can, even when we diagnose low-grade adenosarcoma, that doesn't have other worrisome features like sarcomatous overgrowth or P53 overexpression, if these patients can't be managed a little bit more conservatively, particularly if the entire polyp can be removed. And and the designation uh, that you recommend is atypical uterine polyps and then recommend... Yeah, we do. I think you could say uh, a typical uterine polyp or you could say an endometrial polyp with uh, you know unusual features, um, uh, some people have used the term adenofibroma for this. Uh, mm-hmm. If you open up certain textbooks and you look at the what's been classified as adenofibroma, I think it has some overlap with what we describe as these atypical polyps. Um, but as long as the the, I think the wording doesn't matter as much as the the what you say should happen for the patient. In other words, that these don't meet the threshold for adenosarcoma, and that these tend to you know. Uh, behave in a benign fashion and that these patients can just be managed clinically with follow-up. I think that's the most important thing, you know, that, that comes out of this study. Thank you, Marissa, for most informative uh, conversation. I really uh, enjoyed it and, and learned a lot. Well, I have to tell you, this was a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and so I'm going to highly recommend it to all my friends. If, the, if you come asking Excellent. Thank you. That's we we can use this plug and please share it. Uh, a lot of people were were really pleased with the uh, uh, with uh, how how well this has been followed and uh, throughout uh, throughout the globe, which is great to us. I, I get I hear from people from Australia, from India. So uh, if if we can uh, help uh, the young. Uh, you know, residents uh, in countries where they don't have access to shut to such uh, superstars like yourself. Uh, I think that's uh, we've, we've done a lot. So I really appreciate your support and your taking the time. Definitely, this is a fabulous forum. I'm happy to support it, and thank and you. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do for USCAP and Modern Path. Appreciate My it. Pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Neto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.